The Guardian. Cue the lights, music and ideas. Welcome to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast, the thinking in the shower episode. Alex, I think we need a language warning for this one. Absolutely right, Miles. A quick warning, this podcast contains explicit language. We're feeling very inspired by the kickoff of Vivid Sydney and the Sydney Writers' Festival. So today we'll be chatting about the benefits of public art shows like Vivid Light, whether never being bored means never being creative, and whether people really do stop discovering new music at 33, as proclaimed by a recent survey. It's May 2015. I'm Alex Spring. I write about arts and culture for The Guardian, and I'm joined today by some fabulous guests. Firstly, Nancy Grove, our culture editor, who is currently immersed in the ideas of Sydney Writers' Festival. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Alex. Our first very special guest, Jess Scully, curator of Vivid Ideas, TEDx, and umpteen other creative ventures. Hi, Jess. Hi, Alex. And our second very special guest, Jake Stone, musician, educator, and speaker at Vivid Ideas and Eurovision judge. Yeah, that's the weirdest of the lot. Hi. (laughs) Hey, Jake. Now, do people really stop discovering new music at 33? A recent Spotify survey looked at individual listening data from US Spotify users. They found that around 33, music tastes have matured and solidified. This apparently is more common in men. There were a flurry of articles around this topic, commentators saying that they looked in different places for new music, not just on Spotify. But is it true? Do we stop discovering new music at 33? Full disclosure, I'm about to be 42, so apparently I've given up on finding new music, although I would have to disagree. Jake, you're 35. Have you stopped finding new music? I think it's uh, fairly accurate that you slow down in terms of your, um, like the average person will probably slow down in terms of the natural uptake of culture around them because of the pressures of their life. You know, I mean, you're going to have kids possibly by that stage. You're going to have a relationship potentially. You have the pressure of earning real money without the support of your parents or whoever it is that was helping you. Um, and I think there's a biological process going on too. I really do. I think, because uh, I felt it myself. And if you're working in the industry that, and if you're working in the music industry, you're more uh, inclined or more it's more necessary for you to be updated uh, with new things and have your ear across everything. And you actually, it feels... More slightly more difficult to do. Um, in your early twenties, it's easy. Your ear is naturally on trends because that's who's that's who is being directly marketed to primarily by the music industry. Is early twenties, I guess. Uh, they have a lot of disposable income and they're driving those changes in trends. Um, in your thirties, the thing that was cool about ten years ago or five years ago was your thing, and now all this new stuff is kind of threatening. And ah, oh, it's the opposite because it is the opposite. You know, it's like used to be the strokes were cool and now it's like electronic production is cool because the strokes are not cool and that's the point it's a it's a reaction to those things um so you have to force yourself to be more open-minded and it just takes a lot of a lot more effort as everything does as you get older to stay current um i actually agreed with the study but i think that um you as with anything else you just have to do a little work and you'll probably find that pop music is pop music it just changed form a little as it always does melodies beats they're still important great lyrics are still important you know do you think it's more about being more um specialized in what your tastes are and therefore you perhaps could go further for saying okay i like the strokes what else is happening around that era now especially in our world of so many um different kinds of music have uh, 
you know, sources, people go in search for what they like. True. Um, you know, Spotify playlists and the ever-increasing nicheness of the internet has made it easy to have um, specific tastes and have those catered to almost as an entire listening palette should you want it. I mean, if you like Garage Rock, you can find Garage Rock from everywhere now. Um, and it doesn't have to be hugely successful for it to be delivered to you. Um, so that's really good. Uh, and then as well as that, I think there's also a broader spectrum of listening that's going on in general because people aren't as tired because I think the iPod and shuffle really changed everything. You know, it's like everyone's on shuffle now kind of all the time in their minds. Nobody has a specific genre they're married to. Kids don't as such identify as one thing or another, although there's still subcultures, but they're not as married to those things anymore. Um, and it's great as a musician to not be having to be this one thing or another thing because uh, it's so boring and superficial as a concept. <coughs> Jess, have you given up on new music? Oh, God, this really made me uh, take a long, hard look at my life. And I, I'm really sad to say, I, I think it might be true. Um, I'm 34 and 10 years ago, music was the most important thing in my life. Uh, honestly, I used to write about music. I used to, I used to see five gigs a week. Uh, I knew stupid amounts of information about music and I really cared and I judged people based on what they liked and um, you know I, I was the basis of relationships for me was the kind of music that you liked and um, and you know now I I don't think I really even am in, in the way of music as much. And, you know, a year ago I used to um, host a weekly radio show um, onto SCR and so I would music would kind of come to me and I would kind of go, oh, okay, that, I like that, Courtney Barnett, that's cool. And I would just kind of acquire new things. But um, the older I've gotten, I, I've realised actually the, the harder it is to acquire that new stuff without trying. Um, I suppose you would have more conversations. You know, 10 years ago, I had more conversations about music. It was something that you talked about. Now we talk about people's kids and like, you know, house prices, <laughs> who's getting married and, you know, um, and, and you talk about people's health and, you know, you, you talk about old grown-up person things. Um, no, Jess, don't <laughs> say. I, I refuse to believe that you of all people just talk about old people's things. Oh, uh, well, you know, uh, but I have to say, I mean, uh, I do use um, uh, audio, um, which is like Spotify, and and that does help me um, come across new things, and I'm quite conscious. I consciously try and go to the new releases bit and, and listen to things that I haven't heard of before, and I try and throw myself in the way of new music by listening to FBI and to a CR and but I sometimes find myself you know like two weeks ago I went to an Everclear concert guys mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was a stunned silence <laughs> no, I'm into it. I and it was mean. really great I really liked listening to music from the 90s well it's comforting and music is in and of itself that function too and as you get older it it's actually that becomes partially the importance for people who are past 20-something is that they're looking back to a place that makes them feel comfortable or evokes certain emotions. I, I do think it's important that we push ourselves beyond that because, as I said, there is great music happening all the time. And that thing that you... Yeah, you're not going to feel the same way about new stuff as you are about... you know. It's like a real relationship. You're never going to feel that excellent feeling that you had the first time you are in love. Again, it's just not going to be as 
good the next few times. It'll be different and probably more mature and manageable, but it's not going to have the wildness of emotion and stuff that you associated with because you're just not as hormonal as you were <laughs> when you were listening to Everclear in the early 90s. So hormonal. You know what I mean? So hormonal. Absolutely. I mean, myself yes. as well. Like, I don't, you know, it's going to be hard for me to revisit, um, hard for me to find something as emotionally touching as probably, I don't know, Metallica or whatever the <laughs> fuck I was listening to as a 14 or 15 year old Bogan. Do you know what I mean? But that's what I was into. But yeah, or the Beastie Boys or whatever. But, um, but I've also found that it's exciting and inspiring to push yourself into the age group who are listening to it more regularly. 19, 20 year olds, if you hang out with them and you respect what they do, both as musicians and as people, the shit that they put you on is like amazing. And there's heaps of it out there and then there's dad rock bands like the war on drugs who if you want to go back and listen to something that sounds like it was made when you, you like the things that you like were made there's plenty of those bands around and it's democratizing age as well to some degree Absolutely. because people are looking nancy for new what things. have you discovered have you discovered new music well i just think it's kind of interesting to think that new music doesn't have to be new music it's just new music for you i think there's a huge pleasure in backtracking um and i've had periods of my life where i've had time to discover new music and periods of my life where for whatever reason i haven't been going to regular gigs i haven't been online the whole time and that's ebbed and flowed for me and so one of my joys is kind of um using all that we have now in spotify and the equivalent kind of music libraries to actually go back and fill in the gaps so, for instance, I have a friend who is just a kind of champion mixtaper and his mixtapes are like never just new music. They're always mixing in with old and stuff. And through um, the mixes that he sent me, I've discovered these massive gaps that I missed, like Neutral Milk Hotel, a just fantastic band that have been back touring recently. And for whatever reason, 16 years ago, when they put out that brilliant album, I just wasn't on it. And hearing um, In the Aeroplane Over the Sea for the first time earlier this year, a song that came out 16 years ago, blew my mind as much as hearing it might have done when I was, what, what age would I have been? In my late teens at that point. So I think, yeah, just new music doesn't have to be fresh. It just has to be new to you. And yeah, I totally agree. I, I would tell the story that I lived in France when I was a teenager. And at the time, it was sort of all about Johnny Halliday. Um, and which wow. obviously didn't appeal to me as a 16-year-old girl. Um, but we raided um, a lot of uh, parents' jazz collections and uh, got into the doors and, and that sort of thing. And that was a real eye-opener and a whole sort of experience of, of music, which possibly I wouldn't have been aware of if I'd just been tuned into like 90s music at that point. So. I think it's also led by musicians who are prepared to develop as well and not just stick where they go. We were talking about Blur and Oasis the other day, Alex, and um, I grew up, that was prime teen spot for me. I was probably 14 when there was the big Blur Oasis kind of kind of hoo-ha and, and chart, chart battle. And of course, Blur won that. And then in the kind of subsequent months, everyone was like, but Oasis really won it. But who won in the long term? Blur. Here Damon is back with more amazing stuff. Blur's new album. As long as you've got musicians who are still developing, I think you have listeners who still develop with them too. And, um, and uh, I'm as excited to hear that stuff this year when they come to Splendour as anything else. Is that because they were the band of my teenage years? No, I don't think it's just that. I think it's that they're a band always developing, always doing new stuff, you know, um, and those are the kind of artists that I'm really attracted to. On the discovery of new music question, um, I actually think whether or not you discover new music, I think the important thing is not to think that there is no more good new music. And and I think that quite often happens when your tastes calcify and you kind of start to become quite entrenched in your tastes and you start to think, oh, well, they just don't make music like they used to. 
honestly, there's so much great music being made right now. I mean, people like Kendrick Lamar and Frank Ocean and, you know, people who are just going to be making brilliant music for a long time to come, I hope. Uh, There is still great music out there. And just because it might not be something that appeals to you, I don't think it's it's, um, a good mindset to have that that there's no good music anymore. We tend to think of music as our own personal badge to wear that defines our identity and is an unquestionable truth. But that's bullshit. It's for everyone. There's plenty of great stuff everywhere. And yeah, that's the biggest enemy of, of uh, moving forward in your own life, actually, I think, uh, to, st- to get comfortable with that idea, which is completely nonsensical, that there was no new music that was good made after you liked it, is the height of egotism and madness. It's crazy to think that. Like, I think everyone, anyone who says anything like that needs to be called and called on it straight away and pushed out of the retro nightclub they're currently (laughs) dancing in because you're getting old. You know what I mean? That's just you just getting old. We just need to give them a prescription mixtape, guys. (laughs) That's all it is. Someone can reignite your love for music. You're listening to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. For all our music news and reviews, both in Australia and around the world, head over to theguardian.com, click on the culture section, then click on music. Later, we'll talk about public art and what the benefits are to the wider community. Is the death of boredom the death of creativity? Jake, you're speaking at a Vivid Ideas event called Breaking Boredom and Fueling Creativity. There's also a Sydney Writers' Festival event called Give Me Back My Pre-Internet Brain, in which a panel will discuss what we've given up in our always-on, hyper-connected world. The common factor is the internet and whether it's stealing our daydreaming time. So Jess, does boredom foster creativity? And if we're no longer bored, are we no longer creative? You know, no, I think it's the, I think it's the, the, the ability to uh, distract ourselves at any time. I don't think it's about boredom. I mean, I've never made anything or written anything because I was bored. Um, it, it's, it's, it's when I'm stimulated and have um, a lot of things being thrown at me um, that I that I come up with ideas. I, I often find, for example, that I come up with ideas when I'm watching a band um, or when I'm when I'm looking at art or experiencing something that someone else has made, someone else's expression usually stimulates something new in me. Um, I think though, I, I understand what they're getting at because I go to my phone as a kind of default gap filler in, in my day when I should be looking at the world around me and I should be looking at people. And I mean, that's where the ideas come from. So I think it's about leaving ourselves gaps in our days to be bored or not to be bored, but to be aimless, to be um, not goal oriented or on a journey somewhere, but to just be. And to daydream and to be creative with those, with the creative thinking. My two, my 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 worst and my favorite thing in my like daily routine, my worst thing. And you know this, I hate email with 
a passion and email is my life. I'm just like, like completely imprisoned by it. My favorite time for thinking, you said your favorite time to watch, is in the shower. And I wonder why that is. No, it's not for any dodgy reasons. It's because I can't take my phone in the shower. And it's like literally one of the only places in life that my phone is just not with me. And I do all my thinking. And if I'm ever having problems with writing, I will uh, go and have a shower and like just think about it and then come out. And usually I've sorted out whatever is the like nitty gritty problem that I've been trying to work out in my writing email however I don't think anything stifles my creativity more than that and it's just this constant you know this constant barrage and even if you say to yourself it doesn't matter if I don't check my emails the idea that you've got 500 unread emails in your inbox is just kind of somehow stunts stunts your thinking and stunts your brain and just stresses you out and I don't know what the solution for that is. Jake when are you at your most creative? Uh, Actually I'm I'm most creative when I am bored, when I'm depressed or when I don't, I know this is a boring, like, oh, it's like, it's so 90s to go, oh, it's most creative when I'm depressed. But I like, seriously, if I'm feeling manic or whatever and I don't, and I'm not engaged with a task, then likely as not, that's when I'll come up with hooks. If I'm in bed or if I'm um, doing nothing, walking somewhere, uh, those times are when you have those thoughts. And it is the, it is that shower effect where you're uncontactable and you're not, uh, the two-dimensional you that faces the world every day and is a different person uh, and is a publicly acceptable person, uh, that person is being engaged more and more by the phone that's in your pocket all the time. So you have this fish hook in you that's like, I have to be this good person now. Hi, I'm this person that you know that's this nice person and doesn't swear or doesn't do anything weird. But the person that you get to be when you're actually yourself, which is just you walking around or just you having a bath or picking your nose, whatever it is that you're doing, that's the real you. And that's the you that's going to say interesting and odd and unexpected things. And those unexpected things are the root of creativity. To be willing to say the thing that everybody else thinks is totally wrong to say, but as soon as they hear it has a big effect on them. That's the core of original work and creativity. And whether it's visual or said or it's performed, to me that's the guts of it, is saying the thing that everyone's like, oh, I don't know, Uh, actually, no, um, I don't know, yes, you know what I mean? Like there's some kind of moment with that and that doesn't happen when you're always pretending to be this socially acceptable person. It seems to me as well that the internet is constantly feeding you things that everybody else likes which have become you know, popular things. It's fucked things. up, man. And so it, it's giving you the sort of mediocrity, the sort of average and, yep. and the kind of the things that are truly outside of the box they aren't coming it's to you because the they, they are the outliers. Exactly. It's the they're straight worst thing that's ever happened to this society. It's <laughs> fucking Western society <laughs> well, so hard. Well, look, I mean, I think the, the, the biggest problem I have with it, um, it is an addiction for me as well, um, is, is that it, it turns you into a consumer. Um, and you're, I'm constantly reading and consuming and looking at things that I actually, that's taking up time when I could be coming up with ideas and outputting and that's my problem with it. Um, and it's entirely a matter of self-control and it's entirely about, I need to set up some systems so that I can't look at the bloody thing. The dopamine, <laughs> the dopamine and for oh. me, because you know, that's what they say. It's actually, the, it's the science proves that you actually get dopamine oh, yeah, it's from like your notifications and if yeah. someone's liked something you've done and stuff or whatever. And, you know, lots of people, I think, talk about social media. And I experienced this up to a point as being there's an element of creativity about it. I really enjoy Instagram. I really love taking creative pictures and putting them up and and kind of, yeah, like putting out a kind of a kind of account of my life. There's an element of diarising around public diarising about it. But equally, we all know, and there's much talked about this, that that actually it's a version and it's a curation of your life. And, you know, I think one of the most um, effective 
quotes that I've ever heard about it is that, and I'm not sure if we've talked about this before, but that it's uh, uh, when you feel shit when you see stuff on social media, when you feel shit when you're looking at other people's fabulous lives, it's because you're comparing their outsides with your insights. Mm -hmm. They're creating an external version of their life and you're thinking about the real you inside and how you feel about things. And there's a disconnect between those two things. Absolutely. The difficulty, and I think, uh, Nancy, you really really targeted what is challenging about this. It's the dopamine hit. Um, And for those of us who've grown up in a pre-social media time, um, we have got that level, I think, of cynicism that is healthy, um, understanding that this is uh, a way of social relations, but that that is being amplified in this context. The challenge, I think, is for younger people and um, having grown up with social media, there is a feeling that you want to be accepted and that this is a form of of fitting in, which is really what people want. People want to be accepted by their peer group. Um, And I do think there is a danger to, as you said, Jake, that it will lead to a kind of middling out of, of things where people want more acceptance because if I you know I interview people on a regular basis and so common to the stories of um of artists and creative people is that they just didn't fit in and they didn't you know they were the freaks and geeks and um and they kind of pushed their way through on that through the discomfort of that to a point where actually they realized its value (laughs) you become very battle hardened as that person but and the importance of that is that you don't take um you don't Accept uh, bullshit as face value on face value, and I think uh, we're creating a society or a mini society in social media where that bullshit is just social currency. It's like if you if you nominally agree with the thing that the person's saying, then you're allowed in, and then you p- continue to be part of the conversation. But if you don't, or if you say something that seems prima facie crazy, people are like, "I'm out." Or they're like, like, you psycho, but we don't have to be into, you know, you can, you can leverage it, you can flip it. But, but my point is that I just think there's a superficiality of content and meaning going on that's more about fitting into a, an overall picture of w- this class system thing that we're all part of. That to me is I not... I still well. believe in the rebels. I still believe that they'll still triumph. I still think that, you, you know, there will be people who will go, I don't give a damn. Like, yeah, you can't you hold approve, talent you down. You can't hold that down. And I think that they will. I mean, I'd like to, I have to believe that. I have to believe that those are the people, you know, the young Jake or the, you know, the Tavi or the, you I'm know, totally all of those people who, yeah. will, who will say, no, hang on, I don't care. Yeah, so what? And ultimately, what we've all learned is that those people become the, the leaders. Like Tabby yeah. Gevinson, for example, who was 12 years old and she was like, I really want to be into fashion and crazy avant-garde fashion. I'm going to do this. Um, and, and she became, you know, Tabby. So who everybody knows. Similarly, Courtney Barnett, I'm sure, well, it wasn't like, oh, you know, people said she was different and she has triumphed yeah, as well. Yeah, she worked so. hard so and found I, I, I totally That's agree. Important. I think, though... I, I have to believe that we've given people, kids and younger people, um, something really, really obvious to rebel against. This idea of, of fitting in and getting the most likes what about is going to be it? the least popular thing to do in, yeah. in two years, five years' time. Yeah, maybe that's true. Um, and, and already, you know, kids younger are people Facebook, aren't right? using Facebook. Yeah. And I mentioned something about Snapchat the other day and was howled down because apparently that's not even cool anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, I love the idea that the edge and, and young people keep innovating and I find new ways to rebel. Yeah. You're listening to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. What do you think? Has the internet meant the death of creativity? 
tell us on Twitter at GDN Culture. Soon we'll be chatting about what we're looking forward to in June and we want to hear what you're excited about. Tell us on Twitter at GDN Culture. It's winter in Sydney, which means it's time for Vivid. This year's festival is the biggest in its seven-year history, stretching from Chatswood in the north to Central Park in the inner west. The music program will be headlined by Morrissey and Daniel Johns, and the Ideas Festival has Mad Men creator Matthew Weiner, documentary director Alex Gibney, and publisher Tyler Brule. But the bit that gets the most public attention is Vivid Lights, the spectacular light show that lights up the sails of the Sydney Opera House, the MCA and Customs House. There is also the Light Walk that stretches from Circular Quay all the way to Walsh Bay. It's fun, it's free and it's spectacular. It gets everyone in Sydney out and about even when it's cold, by Sydney standards. But while it's a whole lot of fun, what are the actual benefits to the community? While the festival has various corporate sponsors on board, the lion's share of the costs fall to New South Wales government and to City of Sydney. So does public art like Vivid Light actually benefit the community? Jess, I know you have some thoughts. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm quite biased. This is my seventh year working on Vivid Sydney. Uh, and I also curate public art projects um, as another one of my, my gigs. And so I do passionately believe that public art the right kind of public art and public art done well um, has incredible benefits for the community. Just talking about Vivid Sydney, it, it is something that I think has changed the culture of, of Sydney. As you said, it does bring people out, even though we think it's cold. I mean, I remember working in Circular Quay seven years ago, and it was an absolute ghost town. And I do think it's actually had a cultural impact in that it's changed our perception of what's possible outdoors in winter in Sydney. And I think people are always eager for an opportunity to connect with other people, even if we don't articulate it, um, or even it, it doesn't come to mind in that way. We want to feel part of a communal experience. And I think that's why events like Vivid are so well received by the community because we all want a moment to to come out and enjoy the, the fact that we live in a community and in a city. Uh, and I think it has really changed our perception of what Sydney can be, the fact that it can be um, modified and, and changed through creativity um, and that we have the right and the privilege of being able to congregate and share an experience with each other in public space. Hmm. Jake, what do you think? Uh, I think Sydney is uh, traditionally reticent to do those things and needs uh, events like Vivid to force it out of its comfort zone because otherwise we just become a kind of financially obsessed, status obsessed town full of boring people who don't like to go to shows and will actively avoid good opportunities to see things. Vivid Lights is particularly good because it don't understand the arts and have no interest beyond seeing the lights. Uh, it still drags them to that location, which is fantastic. Um, and it'll pull you into uh, the other events that are on, which are more intellectually challenging, um, and, but don't have the immediate impact, uh, I guess, of the lights that everybody appreciates. And does it actually cross fertilize like that, or I mean, is it just I, oh, bringing people out I to don't Sydney, know. having it, a walk around? It probably doesn't, but mm -hmm. at least um, there's people walking through the event 
and then everybody else that's buying tickets sees those people walking through and those people see the other people potentially going to the thing. And if you look at it as an overview, it looks like a successful event, which I think it is. So it, it is. It is actually um, has been really successful on the numbers and I think it does expand the audience. I think uh, one of the often quoted um, sort of stats about Vivid is that it completely changed the audience of the Opera House, for example. I mean, the Vivid Live component of, uh, of Vivid Sydney brought a whole lot of people who in the, in the first year of that music program, 80% of them had never been to the Opera House. Um, and I still meet people who have lived in Sydney all their lives and have never been inside that venue because the kind of art that's normally on show uh, inside the Opera House is art for the few. Um, and the and music for the few. It, it's it's the symphony. It's the ballet. It's the opera. Um, it's those sorts of things which are the bastion, I suppose, and the form of expression of the one percent. Um, as is it reasonable to say the ticket prices are a little lower as well for Vivid uh, for some of the events at Vivid that might appeal to a twenty-something audience? You know, like. Uh, I don't know, their compilation nights that Modular might be doing or those kinds of things would probably be a little cheaper than seeing something more expensive that would yeah. usually be there. I think price is definitely part of it. And it's also programming. It's like, I think there's something to be said for inclusive events um, and, and whether it's the music program, you know, which has shows like Heaps Gay to Grace Jones to, you know, Frida's putting on Afrocentric nights. Um, it, there's something to be said for telling people Stuff that you like is culture too. So if you enjoy seeing um, really amazing uh, projections on the side of a building, that's creative, that's art too. And, and if you like dancing to, um, you know, Jake, please insert cool music I don't know, genre here. Like electro compilation night or the African <laughs> night or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Like things that you would go to a club too. to see. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to me, that was what I found very interesting about uh Vivid and how, especially in how it has grown, is now how it's spreading out across across Sydney and the sort of cooler little venues like Good God, for example, mm -hmm. are now part of the the scene that happens in Vivid. And given that there's this enormous influx of tourists who come both internationally and interstate, that to me seems like a great benefit to Sydney, not just for bums on seats and and cash registers, but showing the diversity of culture and music and art in Sydney. We definitely need to change the perception that Sydney is Darling Harbour as a tourist location or something like that. I mean, it's a, you know, there's plenty of places that we would go out and enjoy ourselves at that don't necessarily need to be the privy of locals only. Uh, and it is hard to find those places in, in Sydney if you don't know about them prior to arriving here. So I think places like Good God, that, that's the whole thing. It's like Vivid Link's youth culture and the culture of people who are actually going out and seeing stuff every week with a, a more high art concept. And I think it's reasonable to do so because why not? Yeah. Well, it helps support that ecosystem. I mean, Sydney does hide its charms in a lot of ways. And um, we're really obvious in some senses. I, I, I see tourists working down at the rocks, see tourists every day. They get off the boat. They've got 48 hours. They've got to see everything in Sydney. They see the harbour. They go to the beach. They get on the ferry. They go to Manly. And then what? You know, if we could show them that there's so much more that's distributed through this city and there's a really vital local creative culture, I think they'd stay longer. I think they'd have a different perception of us yeah and it, it would help support that ecosystem yeah i'm sick of sydney being thought of as melbourne's poor cousin or the city Hot that, babe cousin I yeah think. yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly you're certainly not poor but um <laughs> ignorant um although you know i mean there's there's reasons why those things exist as perceptions but there's also ways to challenge them it's just that are we 
enthusiastic to challenge them or do we just want to take the easy route and be that thing? And Vivid shows that a lot of people in Sydney who are focused on creativity don't want to take the easy route. And also they haven't been taking the easy route for years, which is pretty much anyone who works in the arts knows that, you know what I mean? Like we're all working for an eighth of the salaries of our friends who work in corporate or television or whatever. Um, and, uh, And we do it because we like what we're doing and we think it's important. This is the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. What do you think about public art events like Vivid Light? Are they worth the cost and the chaos? Visit us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Guardian Australia Culture, and tell us your thoughts. Now it's time for our regular fangirl segment, where we share the things that we're most looking forward to next month. Jess, what's coming up that you're looking forward to? Well, there are uh, so many uh, Vivid Ideas uh, events going on. Um, we've got 150 over the 18 days of Vivid. Um, a couple that fall in June that I'm very excited about. Um, and a designer named Stefan Sagmeister, who um, is a really funny, brave, raw, honest um, graphic designer who's made some incredible books and um, some great content. So I'll be um, interviewing him on the 3rd of June. I'm very excited about that. Uh, On the 4th of June, I've got an event that's become a bit of an obsession. It's called The Future of Work. Um, We're holding it at Google's headquarters uh, in Sydney. And it's basically an exploration of how careers and the nature of work are changing and how much we now need our work to align with our personal values. Um, And also, how we want to have um, a feeling of autonomy and self-expression in the work that we do, which obviously aligns with the knowledge economy shift um, and the fact that we're now working with our minds more than with our bodies. So um, that is going to be a really interesting discussion. There's some great people in that one. And my last um, pick uh, for that week is an interview with Alex Gibney, who is um, a really prolific and and quite controversial documentary maker. He's here for Vivid, but also for Sydney Film Festival. Um, And Alex Gibney is the guy behind some of my favourite documentaries, like the Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, one that's that's out at Sydney Film Festival, Going Clear, the Scientology documentary, which apparently he hired 160 lawyers for. It's it's extraordinary. Mm. He'd need them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and and he's also he also made um, Mia Maxima Culpa, which is about the Catholic Church. He's made a documentary about James Brown that's also in the film festival. I mean. I love documentaries, um, and this guy is the king of docos. Sounds great. I need to go and book some of those events. Jake, what about you? What are you looking forward to in June? Well, uh, Hermit Shooter Touring, <coughs> they've been over in the US for a little while, and they're coming back now, and they seem to be getting amazing reviews in the US that we would all hope that they would be getting. Uh, and so they're playing the Enmore, I think, on the 20th or the 26th. Yeah, we've got an interview coming up with them, hopefully. Oh, great. They, I mean, <coughs> knowing those guys for the last 10 to 12 years, they have been doing this same thing uh, at a high level for a long time. And it's really only now that Australia is getting it on a commercial level. But you could go see Dubs, uh, the keyboard player, play the lounge as a DJ, you know, on Tuesday nights if you'd wanted to five years ago. So this is a good opportunity to see both of these guys who are incredible jazz musicians outside of this band, like genuinely classically trained, excellent musicians do a cutting edge trap set. Like, I don't really know how much better you want it to be in terms of pop music, but that's about as good as it's going to get live. 
Um, plus, they have uh, multicam set up so you can watch them. It's not going to be them standing behind laptops. You know, if you've never seen them before, they produce most of what they're doing live on uh, either simulated instruments or instruments themselves. So it's a pretty exciting show, and I'm keen for that. Um, and then other than that, I'm doing a chat with Andy Bull on the 8th for Vivid Ideas, which is part of our indent feedback program. Uh, and it's a talk about his recent record, Sea of Approval, that he was nominated for Best Pop at the Arias last year for. Um, yeah, it should be interesting. He's a smart guy and he's been through a lot. It's like 10 years of him working, but the first part of that was him making a record that didn't sell, was promoted on a very high level and kind of tanked. And then he spent sort of six or seven years working on his own stuff, not even doing music, you know, challenging a lot of his own perceptions about himself and then eventually self-produced this record that's much more successful. So it's an interesting progression. Sounds great. I'm looking forward to Sydney Film Festival. I'm so excited about just diving into those nearly three weeks of amazing films. And I'm so excited that this year there's so much Australian content. The opening night and the closing night um, are Australian titles holding The Man and Reuben Guthrie other way around and uh, and there's also The Daughter there's also Stranger Land there's Sherpa the Doco which is made by an Australian documentary maker and uh, The Women He Undressed which is Gillian Armstrong's documentary on Ori Kelly who was the fabulous costume designer who went to, ho to Hollywood and had a great time dressing all the fabulous um, screen icons as we know so there are so many great films and I can't wait just to submerge myself what about you Nancy you've got a bunch of things coming up well really it's all about one thing one person which is Marina Bramovich um, uh, it's so exciting she's basically decamping for, uh, to Australia for the winter um, and doing two mega shows uh, a, a big show at Mona in Tasmania but also quite excitingly a kind of residency in Sydney uh, at Pier 2 Three, where not only will she be teaching her infamous Abramovich method to the Australian public, but she'll also be mentoring 12 Australian performance artists who are going to live Big Brother style <laughs> for 12 days in a room upstairs uh, and work with her. Um, and it's just a fantastic list that's been picked by Calder Projects, fantastic, um, obviously, philanthropy um, venture. Um, they've really handpicked these artists who are all sort of not quite at the beginning of their career, but at a point where they can really benefit from this experience. Christian Thompson is one of them. Here you've got uh, this fantastic artist who also happens to be, I think, the first ever Indigenous fellow at Oxford University. He's been living in the UK for a while. Coming home, Abramovich is coming to Australia sort of 30 years after she first visited and had very formative experiences with the Indigenous peoples. She lived out in the outback for six months in the 70s. Um, so all these different things coming together and I think it's just going to be, uh, yeah, it's going to be exciting exciting time. Sounds amazing, absolutely. Well, that's it for this month. Thank you for joining us. If you head over to theguardian.com and click on culture, you'll find our culture podcast page with a list of everything that we've talked about today and links to the articles we've mentioned. Come and tell us what you think on our Guardian Australia Culture Facebook page, facebook.com Guardian Australia Culture, on Twitter at GDN Oz Culture, or send us your culture pics on Instagram, GDN Oz Culture. Talk to us all on Twitter. Follow me on at Alex Spring. Follow Nancy on at Nancy Arts. And follow Jess on at Jessa Roo. Jake is on Facebook under Jacob Stone, and he says he's always happy to have new friends. For now, thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Jess. And thank you, Jake. Thank you also to our producer, Miles, and our erstwhile technical wizard, Jason. And we'll see you next month back here on the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.